1: welcome to the new books network hello everyone uh, here is the disability study ne- channel in a new book sorry in a new book networks. I'm sure Welcome back to our our I mean podcast room. Today, I feel very pleased, pleased and honored to invite Professor Sarah Donthey to discuss her newest book um, entitled Disability in Contemporary China, Citizenship, Identity, and Culture. So again, the first thing I want to do, just briefly introduce myself as a host of this um, podcast and ch- uh, post channel um, my name is Xu Wang. I'm a student in history uh, at the university at Buffalo in United States and my research mainly involved the history of deafness and disability in early 20th century China so next thing I may want to introduce professor Sarah Donsi to briefly talk about herself to us thank you professor
0: Oh, thank you, Shuwan, and thank you very much for inviting me uh, to this podcast. It's uh, it's really quite timely, as my as the book initially, Disability in Contemporary China, initially came out in twenty twenty. That was during sort of the, the depths of the COVID pandemic, um, and that was in hardback. But now it's out in paperback, so and just out in paperback. So this is this is fantastic to be able to have this opportunity to talk to you. Um, so um, to introduce myself, I'm a professor of Chinese studies and disability. At the University of Nottingham in the UK. Um, Sort of in terms of my history, I really am um, I would class myself as I suppose as a China, a China specialist. I've been working and visiting and studying China for over 30 years now. I've I, I even started learning Chinese back in 1989. If I hope that doesn't date me too much, but um as we all know, Chinese language is very difficult, so I still feel like I'm learning it today. But I, I do like to use um my knowledge of China and my um my Chinese, my ability to read and, and listen to Chinese and speak Chinese um to that in a way that informs and and I hope enhances my, the research that I do. Um my original sort of my earliest research was about Chinese history and culture and literature. Um, My PhD was set in the 16th century. So I'm a historian like you. And, um, uh, and so that I think it's One of the characteristics of my research, even though I'm now looking at more contemporary issues relating to disability in China, um, is that it is really strongly embedded and informed by China's historical uh, progress and processes and understandings. Um, So, yeah, so that's me. I'm really looking at uh, disability in China, both historically and today.
1: Okay. Thank you, Professor. Thank you so much for your brief talk of yourself and your research. So my next question will be, okay, I want to say most of disability historians may encounter being, I mean, mostly disability history have, have experienced how being asked by people like, why do you take interest in disability studies? It's not so, I want to say, it's not so I was, I even now. I was saying you okay, the academic work is still marginalized the field. So why do you? Why did you take interest in this field?
0: Thank you. That's that's a really good question. And, and actually, if um, that question isn't asked so much uh, it, when I when I give talks in in the UK uh, or in uh, you know in, in Ireland or in in Europe or in the US, um, I think that question is. I'm asked that question most when I go to China or I speak. Uh, with scholars from China or do I do my research in China and and I think um, unlike many people who do take up their research of disability from a very personal perspective because they themselves are disabled. Um, I, I personally am, I, I am non-disabled, but I do have personal experience of disability and um, in the acknowledgments in my book, I spend quite a, a a long time talking about my own family's experience with disability. my daughter has cerebral palsy. and I think, that was really one of the triggers that sort of sort of took, you know, as I as I was living with a with a, a disabled person and seeing the world both through their eyes and also through as as a parent of a child with disability, I began to sort of to feel very, um, very much um, I suppose the ways in which disabled people are treated, and and this is treated in good ways, but also very commonly in bad ways, but often using vocabulary that can be is seen to be positive, but also can be is can be very sort of marginalizing and and demeaning, and and it was those sort of contradictions in my personal experience that. That, that led me really to think about how I could how I could draw on those understandings and take them to um, a, an academic level and and so what I did is I sort of began in the early 2000s to to think about disability in China and try to sort of bring those two worlds together um, and one of the first things that I did notice was that there was this massive gap and really nobody was writing about disability um, in any substantive way whatsoever However, um, there were some notable exceptions, I think Matthew Corman's work, um, he did some excellent ethnographic work on disabled men's experiences in Beijing, a, a, sort of around the sort of 1980s and, and 1990s. Um, b- but beyond that, in terms of published works, there was very little going on. Um, and so I felt there was an absolute sort of gap uh, when we came to look at disability in China. Um, and it's quite interesting, because when we talk about disability in the UK, we People are always uh, talking about how much we need to know more and, and there's such a big gap in it. But if you take it back to China, then, as I'm sure you already know, this is, you know, it's a massive, it's a massive, massive field that really hasn't. We've only just started to scratch the surface. So beyond the gap, then, I suppose the next thing that sort of got me thinking about This sort of transition into looking at disability in China was the fact that the focus of people's work, those those people who who were looking at disability really were looking at it in very specific fields. And I'm thinking about disability, sort of disabled people's experiences in education disabled people and social work and social care um, discrimination in employment situations um, there was some legal work looking at uh, rights and, and and other sort of legal processes um, a few a few sort of semi historical stuff and, and 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 of course uh, Cormann's anthropological work so there was this again another rather large lacuna in that we weren't looking at disability in China from a cultural or or a predominantly sociological perspective. And I think that's really important because we can't really extricate sociology and culture and we can't then look at all of these other ways in which disabled experiences happen in a particular cultural context without looking at, at culture and history. So my thought was somebody needs to come in and, and try to tie all of these various sort of threads together to try to provide some sort of overarching framework. Now, of course, working in the UK context or, or, or a global North context, we do have a, a you know some fantastically sort of well-developed and strong understandings of how disability is understood and experienced, and of course, um, you know, the social model. Is 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 one of the I think one of the greatest contributions of UK scholarship to to the study of disability. You know, Mike Oliver's work and and, and others who have who have taken that understanding that disability is created by um, social barriers uh, and is not in. Uh, uh, as a result of the fault of the individual in themselves, they've they've disentangled the relationship between disability as a social um, issue and impairment as a, a more medicalised and individualised issue, and so those those things are sort of really important. Um, but what I felt was. As people applied these theories that were developed in the Western context to places that were beyond that context and not just China, but a lot of work has been done on, on Africa, South America, other, other um, areas uh, in, you know around the world. But also even within Europe, um, it, it, it was quite clear that there was a disconnect between, although it was help, very helpful in understand, helping us to see where those barriers and those sources of oppression were, whatever you do, it, it made... Both the context and, but also the people who are living through those experiences seem seem bad. I don't, I don't know how better to describe it. But I always felt that if I was if I was going to use a social social model and sort of sort of unpick, um, you know, cinema or literature or policy. You know, China would always come out bad, and it would also always come out worse than anywhere else that has had a longer history of, of disability rights and protection of, of, of disabled persons. Um, you know, um, livelihoods and opportunities. So. And that really wasn't what I was seeing when I was or, or hearing when I was talking to people who were disabled in China um, but, but also reading the works that they were producing and and what I was get, getting was a sense that actually some of their, well a lot of their experience was very positive and uh, you know taking a social model and saying well actually what what's happening here is really bad seemed to devalue their experiences so I wanted to think about how we could take sort of step back a bit and 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 try to think a little bit more broadly about how culture context history and you know contemporary policies and 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 processes all all combine you know not necessarily in China but elsewhere as well to 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 frame and you know um, I suppose Challenge or, or even um, you know, sort of uh, strengthen, reinforce people's experience of what what it means to be disabled in a particular context. Um, so that was really, really why I thought thought about sort of moving into disability studies and looking particularly at China.
1: Okay, professor, thanks so much for your answer. So I totally agree with you because one thing you mentioned, like okay. <clears throat> Um, uh about like uh, like uh, the in- importance of um, introducing like for example chinese cultural contest and social contest into the uh, promising or expanding study of disability in the world because i i mean I'm, I'm as i mentioned i'm also a disability historian so i pretty sure like i'm in agreement with you like you uh, I won't say in the field, the field general sense, the field of disability studies is still dominated by uh, still. I mean, I won't say still Eurocentric, or much more precisely, is a, is much is very Anglo American. So hmm. what I means that the most important framework and theory uh, are created and contributed by scholar in in America and the United in United States and the UK. So while, well, but uh, as you mentioned, like maybe some free were created by, I mean, scholars studying American, like America and uh, British, I mean, UK may not really fit into to I mean to 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 the to the discussion of representation and the perception of disability in the remainder the world, especially in the global th- South. So, next thing, Let's go back to your book. So one thing, I, another thing I noticed in your answer to my first question, second question, is that you mentioned the two important uh, issues, one is like uh, disabi- di- sorry, p- um, disabled people's experience with I mean, discrimination, and another thing you emphasize the importance of disability rights. So in my view, the two issues they both are. They are both related to citizenship. And when I read your book, I noticed that the relation between citizenship and the disability is a um, one of the major concern of your book. So I want to make sure. Could you please briefly talk about like because as you mentioned, you're a historian. Could you please briefly talk about like uh, dynamics in the in the uh, dynamics in the relations in the I mean twenty for example, the, in, the in the 20th century China?
0: Okay, yeah, no, that's a really good question. And thank you for picking up on that. Um, and I like the way that you talk about the changing relationship and uh, between sort of disability and citizenship. And, and I think it's really important to, to think about that. I think one of the, the major findings about, you know, in my research was that citizenship and citizenship for disabled people has been very fluid and very dynamic and continues to be that. And it's, um, and thinking about why we need to embed it in Chinese historical developments is really important too, because where I start the book, I don't go all the way back in history. Um, that's um, that's what I'm leaving to somebody else to do. But I, I sort of start the story um, in the mid nineteenth sort of century, uh, sort of working work and and work my way forward. And why I've chosen that particular period was I think it's the it's the time in which China's China transitioned from um, an empire to a modern nation nation-state and in itself was grappling with these notions about you know what constituted a citizen um, and it, we often think of disabled people as being marginalized within these broader discussions of citizenship but actually what I found was that disabled people were almost um drawn into these discussions about what made a citizen in the early days of the the Chinese um uh, the Chinese um republic um and and on into the in later on into sort of the mao era from 1949 onwards were really framed around the body and the mind, and not just any old body and mind, but but essentially the ideal citizen was was somebody who had uh, was uh, was fit in body, fit and able in body, but also uh, sort of healthy and uh, in mind too. Um, and I think so. So it, it, it wasn't an obvious thing that disabled people would were, were, were drawn into this discussion but they they then became very much affected by by these discussions and they were held up as examples of of how not to be an ideal citizen but also how to be an ideal citizen as well and thinking back about why why this period was so important I think for setting up what what comes later um, is the fact that Chinese the chinese um, you know officials and leaders at the time were really grappling themselves with how to move beyond traditional ideas and particularly those philosophical ideas such as sort of confucianism in particular which which uh, as we all know was was uh, the, the the idea the thought that came in for most most banging really you know um, but confucianism itself was really set the tone for how people um, in who sort of inhabited non normative um, ideals of, of of physical and mental health should be incorporated or not into society and I think this was really because of the way in which um the individual was and, and their, their body and their actions were subsumed um, or, li- or understood through their functions. And this could be either through a social role or maybe through the, the way in which one conceived a civilised person. Um, and in Confucian thought, that civilised person tends to be male. But I will leave it as as ungendered at the moment. Um, so in terms of the social roles roles, a person was um, a useful person to society if they could economically support their family or the broader clan. But they were also important to society because, and particularly the family in the lineage, because they could then bear children. So this bearing of children and offering economic support to that clan or familial structure was, was were the core parts of people's social roles. So if you weren't able to perform those social roles, then th- then what what use were you to to society under Confucian thought? And in terms of that, you know, if you, you had to be useful, but you also have to be civilized. I suppose with Confucianism, and there was this notion that you had to st- constantly strive to improve yourself, this continual um, striving to both improve yourself um, intellectually but also improve yourself in terms of your relationships with other people in, in both within your immediate circles but also beyond. and that any imperfections in that air of civility that you cultivated within yourself um, implied vulgarity and imperfect, you know, sort of this imperfect, uh, an imperfection of mind and body. So, so if somebody wasn't able to do these things or if somebody was sort of even physically didn't meet the criteria of this this perfect gentlemanly um, to bring the gender back in uh, or civilised ideal, then 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 they were deemed to be uh, not useless or, or, or unworthy of, 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 of being titled civilised. And what really happened at the end of, 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 of the, the imperial period and moving um, sort of nine, the end of, of that, that period was Chinese traditional thoughts, this Confucian ideals um, really came head, sort of met up with Western scientific thinking um, that Chinese elites were grappling with themselves as they sort of transitioned to these to this new idea of a nation state. and And I suppose more than anything, eugenics was one of those ideas that really, almost complemented traditional chinese thinking about what makes um human quality um and the ter- the chinese term su um, you know is is really encapsulates this idea of there is something about humans that we can grade and there are some humans that are better than other humans and and and, and there are somehow we should actually try to improve humans so that they get to the highest quality of being human as as understood of the day um, now Chinese elites were really concerned about this because, in order, they, they'd gone through all of these traumas of, of the period, um, um, the Opium Wars, uh, Sino, uh, so, uh, Sino-Japanese Wars, and uh, China had been proven to be very weak in, in this regard. Uh, you know, a century of humiliation, and this uh, and this idea that China was actually the sick man of Asia, and had to somehow cure itself uh, um, in order to sort of restore its standing on the world stage. So lots of, both within China and outside of China, um, people would, would, would sort of look for evidence that China was sick somehow, either in mind or in body. And one of the, uh, you know, one of the most interesting things that I sort of found as I was looking through those, those archives were these, the paintings of Peter Parker, who was a medical missionary down in in the south of China. Um, And they were painted as part of a project that sort of really um, enabled um, sort of almost visualized the tumors, the, this, the actual physical evidence, uh, you know, women and men with their tumors exposed was, was physical evidence that, you know, that, this, that China needed curing. And all of these ideas were then adopted by both Communist, the Communist Party and also the, the Nationalist Party as, as both then worked to try, sort of took on this idea that in order to be a useful citizen, you had to be healthy of mind and body.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Professor. <clears throat> I really appreciate your answer to my question. I think it's very interesting because I wanna say your research on China may may renew I mean may contribute some like very interesting thoughts to our debate about like something about like uh, the able list or, or able able list uh, able nationalist assumption in a definition of citizenship in a in western context. But i won't say according to your answer your talk i won't say the. i mean the definition of citizenship and, and the relationship between disability and citizenship in china is much more it's it's quite different from the same issue in in a western context so my next question will be um my next question will be because, as I mentioned, your book talks a lot about citizenship, and when I read your book, I noticed that you use a very interesting term, very inspiring term, it's called paracitianship. So could you please briefly talk about what is leadership para- and how, what, how do you think of the importance of this kind of I want, category or phenomenon in, in Chinese society?
0: Okay. Thank you. Yes. I mean, paracitizenship, this this concept was, as far as I'm aware, nobody else has used it in relationship to disability. It's been used elsewhere to, to describe people who, um, for example, migrant communities who who have been left some, who've had a very sort of difficult relationship, shall we say, with citizenship processes. And And I was inspired to use it because, as I said at the start, I was... I was really troubled by the fact that every every time I was looking at how citizenship was conceived in relationship to disabled people that they were always it was always positive it was always presented as very negative so you know, we have semi-citizens, absent citizens, shadow citizens. All of these imply that disabled people are rather passive or at least, you know, they're just, they're somehow not included in mainstream society and they have no say in how they understand their their, their activity. So I was looking for a, for a term, you know, that would actually offer more of a spectrum of 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 identity and belonging that could both cover those negative aspects so you know the ways in which as i've just mentioned you know broader more hegemonic discourses about the body the mind um, ability disability uh, were conceived at a sort of a more macro level but also then but how people then lived those experiences and understood from a very personal perspective and talked about you know how it meant to be disabled could also be covered within that, and I think using combining citizenship with with power is is a is a really useful way of doing it because we already understand power to mean um, to be associated with disability. We think about the Paralympics for example, para athletes, um, and even within that even the term a para athlete there are the, de- the debates that both you know para athletes themselves you know see draw great strength and pride from their ability to you know to, 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 to apply you know do their do their work as athletes and and be rewarded for that um, uh, and their achievements but you know there are critics that say you know why do we have para athletes we should just have athletes um, and and they feel it's quite a disempowering term so so, I wanted to have a term that could cover these debates and show that people could be both disempowered on one level but empowered in another level and 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 give and recognize that different people, even within the same context, could also have different understandings of that and i draw I draw a lot of my ideas from from the academic research on cultural, cultural citizenship my very good colleague here nick stevenson at the university of nottingham nottingham is um you know has led the way in trying to talk about citizenship as a as a process that's embedded in culture that we are all educated as to how to belong to society but also they, it educates us as to who belongs in society as well and, uh, and the parameters for that sense of belonging. Um, and, and, and so it, it enabled me to turn to the, to the ways in which we should really try to imagine disabled identities it, both in and through culture. Um, and, and I think that's, that's how my, the, book, the book came along. And I think language has a, has a very important part to play there. And going back to sort of, you know, if we're looking at the historical trajectory of, of para-citizenship in China, we see that, you know, from from more traditional societies, the imperial society sort of, and, and through into those early days, disabled people were, were described as fei, woo, um, literally, you know, these, these as unwanted objects, rubbish, and or, or the term tan fei, which is um, sort of, Oh, broken and, and, and rubbish people. So they, or fei ren, you know, rubbish people. So, so from that, those understandings, they were, they were then transformed through the Maoist era after 1949. And, and people were arguing, you know, that my evidence shows that people arguing that actually you're calling us this, but this isn't how I feel. You know, I've, I feel I am useful. I am disabled, but not useless. Is, is the term they use, and they were very concerned about how to become useful to society. So this is a this is a process in which disabled people themselves are active players. Um, they have agency. They can choose to to, to 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 understand and and react and negotiate and challenge these more dominant discourses of 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 you know of 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 belonging, but also. They can also find great meaning in it if they if they then understand where they fit uh, and and I felt that we shouldn't apply you know judgment value judgments to them so you know and and those conversations about how you describe yourself what language you use what language other people use um, continued as well into the reform era and 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 1976 onwards and we we now know you know disabled people at this time as china opened up in it, it to the world and started engaging with global initiatives from the un uh, and more recently from the um, convention on rights of persons with disability the language is changing again and we've gone from tan fei ren, you know these disabled and, and not uh, not useful or or broken people to tan ren, which is a little bit more medicalized but it's still uh, it's hand discarded and and rubbish plus plus uh, ill or sick. Um... But again, then they it's transformed again to tanjang, which is Im, Im, the jang meaning a barrier, uh, and so trying to employ those uh, social model understandings, rights-based models that disability is actually socially constructed and lived, and, and this has often been driven by disabled people themselves. And so I think you know they're, they're trying to find meaning through vocabulary, they're contesting meanings that are handed down to them, and and so paracitizenship is a fluid, it's very. It's a dynamic, we can conceive of it as a spectrum, it involves the state, it involves society, it involves historical and traditional understandings, but it also very much involves disabled people themselves, and their emotions, and the ways they feel about things. And I think that's one of the big things that the book brings out is, is the way in which people's voices and feelings about something can bring change but also the ways in which governments and states also mobilize emotions <laughs> to, to, to try to get people to do or behave in a certain way based on their own classifications of what makes somebody useful or not.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Yeah, Professor, thank you so much for your answer again. So <clears throat> I, 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 I mean I take some I took some notes when I listened to your answer. I noticed that it's very interesting because you emphasize the changing I want to say the changing perception and the self-perception of people with a disability in 20th century China with an emphasis on I want to say dynamic in the rhetoric and the discourse of the disability from Sanji to Fei to Zhang So I want to say this thing, this issue is related to our, my next question. is about representation of disability in media. So my next question is like, could you please briefly talk about the contrast and the similarity between the representation of disability in different type of media, such as novels and the movies in contemporary China?
0: Yeah, I mean representation. I think is a really is is a really interesting way of or of interrogating the ways in which those sort of dominant discourses are um, are perpetuated and promoted, but also the ways in which people who then uh, relate or watch those 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 cultural forms and cultural medias but also producing them themselves and so this is one of the reasons why i, d- I chose to look at a variety of media um, as, p- as part of the book because i wanted to see how those conversations were panning out in practice um, and over time and again over t- you know it's very difficult to do things on a more longitudinal basis um, through through other empirical means and so i think but but before i sort of talk about the, f- the the those those particular sort of cultural forms that i looked at i think i think one of the, th- the the things that i took forward as i started my investigation and sort of reading reading these different forms was was the story of jang haidi and 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 she, she is somebody who i've been very interested in for a long long time um and f- for people who don't know about Zhang Haidi, she's actually she's you know she's somebody who is immensely politically powerful now. You know, president of the uh, the China Disabled Persons Federation. But but when she first came to the, to the notice of people in in 1981, um, she was just a young girl. Um, she um, was a wheelchair user. She'd um, she had a spinal um, sort of injury, which which left her um, unable to walk. Um, and so she was, uh, but she but she was obviously extremely tenacious and um, had a very supportive family. And so living through the Cultural Revolution, she'd she'd had to, and, and you know, really work hard to get an education um a lot of her a lot of what she'd learned was actually self-educated and 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 through this she'd she'd really made her name for herself locally and she was uh, and 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 her story was picked up by um uh, i think it was the people's daily and, and and published and her story really resonated with a lot of people at the time, because here we have somebody who traditionally was considered to be, I suppose, weak, um, uh, weak in body, but really strong, strong in terms of her perseverance and determination. And, and what was um, what I feel is that she she had I mean, it was she didn't start it, but she built on people sort of throughout the Mao era and um, exemplars and and heroes who had who had overcome their disability. And I'm here, I'm drawing on Mike Oliver's personal tragedy theory to explain how disabled people are, are seen to overcome their personal um, tragedy of impairment. And she she really set set, set up this 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 Jiang effect, which saw people people's understanding of disability as being something that could be overcome through either cure or rehabilitation and uh, and was if you didn't do it then there was some sort of failing within yourself and uh, and there was something wrong with you but it meant that combining the appearance of Zhang hai D uh, in the 90 early 1980s with all of China's engagement with the UN meant the cultural forms and representations from this period onwards started to build on this narrative of... You could become equal. You could participate in society. You could share the bounteous joys of of the new market economy and the sort of capitalist society with Chinese characteristics, if you did these certain things. And and it was characterized by what became known as the four selves. And the four selves were um, um, the self respect, um, uh 自知, Self confidence, uh, self improvement, Chiang, uh, and self reliance, uh, or self supporting nature. So these these four selves, you know, really became the core about how people, you know, should should see their lives. And so what, you know, so people were expected. The, the rights were appearing in the laws and the, and and that. But they also. Disabled people had a role to play as well. And I think this is what seemed to give people's lives values. So when it came to looking at the, all of this was in my head as I came to look at the various media forms. And I could see this playing out, this idea that disabled people, um, you know, and this was even, sort of just a, sort of as an aside, this was even in, uh, in films and works that were produced by disabled people themselves, or had a sort of an intimate understanding of disability because their their family um, family members were disabled, was there something that the fact that disabled people had had to draw on themselves and overcome their disability, and or, to avoid becoming an object of pity, um, it, the, the media also, for the most part. Um, presented disability as undesirable, something to be feared, um, you know, the fact that you had to be tried to be as, and I'm using inverted commas here, as normal as possible. So so still this idea that there was normality or normative existence, um, i.e. non-disabled, was the ideal, but somehow disabled people could get to it or as close to it as possible um, through somehow some in- endeavours. And so looking at Xie Jin's films, Youth and Venus, um, 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 Sun Zhou's film, Breaking the Silence, um, uh, Zhang Yuan's uh, sort of pseudo-documentary-style film, Mama. Um, all of these sort of cinematic, you know, really played on this idea about um, abnormality, um, searching for normality, Um also that, you know, that, that, that somehow people had to overcome it and that there was something wrong with them if they couldn't. When you go into literature, too, particularly in the early 1980s, there was idea about the fearfulness of disability. And I think, but also the fact that there were voices out there to be heard, too. And I I, I was particularly interested in the author Shetie Shang, um, who himself um, is, a, is probably known as the most famous disabled writer in China. Um, he's no longer with us. But um, his early work in particular was was very much focused on his own disability and sort of trying to work through what that meant to him and how he could position himself within the society of the time. I mean, he, he often didn't write about himself. He used other characters. And so it's all, all often had this sort of semi autobiographical sort of bent to it. Um, but what was interesting about Shatia Shang's writing is that as he wrote about people like himself who were either wheelchair users or had physical mobility issues it, it, it seemed to it seemed to feel sort of more authentic. But as the further he he strayed from his own experience, and started to write, for example, about blindness, and this he does in life on a string, um, which some people may have seen as as, as a, a very famous film. Um, he, he he starts to to move towards stereotype, and so. It, it, it's quite interesting. that So it, that to me was quite telling because it shows us that it is easy to revert to stereotype. <laughs> and particularly if you don't know what you're talking about. And, and so um, but then even through those pieces about when people are talking about themselves and representing themselves, people spoke in stereotype too and in these stereotypes and assumptions and they sort of built that into their own identities and and either sort of in oftentimes didn't even challenge the fact that the vocabulary they was using was actually reinforcing the, discri- the discriminatory attitudes and and stigmatizations that they were facing in their everyday life so it was really Um, quite interesting to see this playing out um, through different authors and through different media across those things I mean bringing it up a little bit more to date one of the most interesting novels again which has now been made into a film was um, Bifei Yu's Tuina or Massage uh, as as it's been translated um, also which looks at the massage industry and how sort of blind people are funneled into Uh, an industry that has been for many years assumed to be something that blind people are good at, because obviously they're saying that the the narrative goes, if they can't see, then they must be good at something else like touch. Um, So they they must be good at massage. And so there's a whole industry that's sort of serving disabled people, blind people. Uh, um, It's built up in China and people are, are funneled through the education system to do this particular job and another one is a piano tuner you know or piano player something musical because again if you can't see then you assume that you have your auditory um your auditory skills are compensated and so you know I, i would encourage people to have a you know read um a twain hour or watch massage because it really it starts to challenge these notions that disabled people all want to do these things <laughs> and that they all subscribe to these stereotypes about them. And one of the most powerful characters in the novel is 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 somebody uh called Du And she spoke her story really spoke to me because through her story she realizes that, you know, she I mean she knows very much she doesn't want to be a masseuse but she has a skill at piano playing and she realizes as she's paraded out in front of non-disabled audiences that that she's there to make them feel better her impairment makes non-disabled people feel better about themselves and she says there are some some phrases she talks about how she's she realizes now that she's she was in debt to non-disabled society, to the able-bodied society. And somehow she had to do stuff to pay off this debt. She didn't know how she got into this debt, but she was in it. And this, was, this is the way she had to pay it off. And this idea that disabled people are perpetually living in debt to non-disabled or able-bodied society, I think is really, really interesting. And, and I can see that coming out in all of these cultural forms. And it's part of this needing to overcome to become useful a useful member of society coming in from wherever else they've been marginalised and excluded from society um, and, and brought back into mainstream society. They overcome their disability through either physical or mental means, cure rehabilitation, whatever it is, to pay back a debt to society to become useful once again.
1: Yeah, think. you. So much, Professor. Thanks again for your answer. <clears throat> so I really appreciate you talk. I mean, you're both a researcher, and you talk here about Zhang Haidi because I I think I remember her very well because I I mean I grew up in China in the uh in the 1990s. When I was a child in elementary school, I learned Zhang Haidi's story. Uh, you learned about Zhang Haidi,
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, the quite interesting thing is Zhang Haidi was never meant to be a model. Uh, for disabled people, Zhang Haidi was meant to be a model for non-disabled people, for the young people. So, uh, you know, so I think everybody knows Zhang Haidi and as you know, whether whether she whether her story speaks to them or is a different matter. But yeah, you're absolutely right.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. Like you, you I really appreciate you use the term like model. I want to say like uh, she was described in my memory. She was described as a model citizen in Chinese. I mean, public education. So um, another, I want to say. Well, now I reflect, I mean, as a disability historian, when I, I, mean, I reflect on the narrative, what I learned when I was a child in elementary school in China about Zhang Haidi, I won't say the narrative now, I take a I mean, to a, a critical reflection. I won't say the official narrative is about her. I won't say it's a fraught with, I won't say, um, um, overcome and normative uh, narrative promoted by the able-bodied authorities and the so-called mainstream society. But another person I want to, I really appreciate that you mentioned is, the, is, the, is the Shi Tie-sheng. I really, I really like, I'm big a big fan of him about his his writing, about his experience as a disabled people, which is very, very interesting for me, especially as a disability historian now. I want to say his book records much more about experience of disabled people in Chinese society and his encounter with difficulty with discrimination, or whatever. It's, t- it's quite different from the official narrative of like Zhang Haidi in China if in Chinese test Chinese textbook. So. I want to say so. It's related to my next question because I think at the end of your book, you talk a lot about life writings composed by people with disability, and you emphasize the difference between their own narrative and the so-called public imagination. I want to say public here refers to able-bodied people. So, could you talk about what's the difference between those life writing and the able-bodied? imagination, about the people's imagination of disabled disability and disabled people.
0: Yeah, no, thank you. I think, I mean, one of my, again, one of my earliest encounters with, with disabled experiences in China was, was through life writing. Um, and it was through the story of Zhang Haidi, obviously, but also another young man called Zhang Yuncheng. Now he's, he's, he's now written two memoirs. Um, and uh, he's uh, the first one of those is uh, 3 days to walk which in chinese is jia or santian and his second one which was published in 2003 and then his second one was flying without wings huanyong uh, fan which was published in 2012 and he, wh- wh- why i sort of i, I was really interested in Yu chang because i mean first of all he was he's a young man and I have a lot of interest in how you know gender plays a role. You know, in 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 in, in you know, we think about gendered identities and how that sort of intersects with experiences and, and other aspects of people's lives. And um, so, thinking about how how a young man like Zhang Chang, you know, could r- wrote a story about his experiences, and it was it was it was really nice because it it, it I felt I could hear the frustrations of a young man coming through his, his, his memoirs. Um, You know, he was, he was bitter about the discrimination that he faced. He was acutely aware of the stigma of of having a disability. But through it all, he still had hope. And he, you know, the way he, he sort of tried to think about how to how to how to achieve his dreams was 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 really really interesting, and a lot of books written by people like Zhang Chung uh, and others have have. When I went to sort of buy them in the bookshops, it was quite interesting because they weren't in the section you would think they were in. They weren't in the section which was you know biographies and memoirs. Um, they were in the section the self help section. So these were books that weren't being seen as. Th- Autobiographies, memoirs, life writing, that sort of way. they were they were being promoted as self-help books. And so I could see there was a very close link between the writing of disabled people offering some form of inspiration to their able-bodied readership, and again, this is probably who the who these books are primarily aimed at. Now, Jang Yun Chung became was the first, but became part of a stable of young authors um, and not so young authors um, who were promoted and encouraged by an editor, um, uh, Zhang Danor, who who had what he termed a self-help project, and and basically Jang Da Nor, who himself was non-disabled, would go around and sort of collect. These disabled young people and, and writers and, and and encourage them to write and you know uh, uh, you know and he's, he's he's got a whole stable of, of books that have been published with you know with his support um, but all of them have these characteristics as well about you know sort of the, the reflecting on the sort of the real problems in their lives, which are often very remitted from the more official narratives promoted by the state because the state doesn't want to tell people how awful. Disabled people's lives can be in China today. That's that's you know they want to show that the, the people have got through their overcome their overcome their the, the problems be, uh, and 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 they're living the living the good life now. Well, these people aren't and they haven't been, and and so understanding how how their lives, them telling their own lives, albeit with a, a great deal of help from Zhang Dan or who in his own words, is often very encouraging for them to tell the darker side of their story because it would probably sell um, for a start. Um, but at least we get to hear those stories now. I, and I think it's very interesting because what they do as part of this telling the darker side is they they often focus on what I describe in the book as the troublesome their troublesome bodies. They themselves are frustrated by their existence and they themselves are, you know, of, of trying, trying to of finding it hard to find meaning in a society which is telling them, both at the one time that you know they're equal and they have rights, but at the other hand that they clearly aren't because they are they aren't getting the education, they aren't getting the employment opportunities, they aren't getting the marriage opportunities, all of those the good life as promised under neoliberalism, so. So it was thinking about how they they went through this this way of exposing their disability, their impairment to to public gaze, um, to both tell their own truth, but also to attract a readership. And so there was this very interesting link between disabled writers themselves, their experiences, and um, their non-disabled readership. And so this is very much what we talk about uh, as as the able-bodied gaze and. In a way, they're responding to what they think their non-disabled readership would want to see. But it's part of also them being necessary to tell their own story. And it and, 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 and often this becomes much more acute with female writers. And it was also a really interesting characteristic about the story of Zhang Heidi. So if you compare Zhang Heidi's story to all the other male stories, the wounded heroes, etc., they all talked about their disability But they didn't talk about the most intimate nature of the disability. So, for example, with Zhang Haidi, we hear about her incontinence. We hear her body is almost exposed to view. We're told about the fact that she wasn't able to have sex with her husband and all of these sort of these things that really expose the female body to view. And this also happens much more with female writers as well. So so the public is imagining, the non-disabled public imagines a very a weak and vulnerable female troublesome body um which which becomes a sort of core of a narrative and with one author um her name is yin shujin and her her her, her, her memoir was was entitled in english uh, a showdown with death uh Jue which was published in 2012 she spends chapters and chapters talking about her troublesome body and she calls it her troublesome body too uh, you know exposing all the most intimate details to to public view but as a a part of saying this is how this is me this is this was my life you know and this is how I've needed to come to terms with the fact that I was made disabled later you know became disabled later on in life you know I wasn't born with my disability but it's all about then again paying back debts and 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 seeing that you know you've got you then have to find a value in your life and 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 do that so my thoughts on this were that all of these people you know these real people that we're talking about in these memoirs have are telling a story about how they successfully navigated themselves from a position of weakness to a position of strength and and this has been then used to inform and educate disabled people about how to be a good para citizen in china but also it informs the broader public the non disabled Readership about what it means to be disabled and how they should think about it. So that is how it sort of feeds into that public imagination of what it means to be. Me. So it it almost reinforces people's fear of being disabled because they have these troublesome bodies that are, you know, you know, are often painful, um, cause you know, cause them all sorts of anxieties and and limits opportunities, which of course we know structurally is is society itself. But this is how it's presented in these works. Um, but also, I think it often it, it's seen as an inspiration. to if if people like Zhang Hai Di, Zhang Yuncheng, Yin Zhen can do it, and they're disabled and they have all these troubles, you know, I could, I, I too should be able to manage my own problems um so this is why you know a lot of people critics you know have talked about inspiration porn about how disabled you know we are not you know Stella Young is famously talked about you know I'm not your inspiration porn and I you shouldn't use my experience to to you know and and, and, you know watch me do everyday tasks and wonder at them um, and wonder how I could do them in my disabled body you know that's not how it should be so But it's how these people have made meaning of their lives, and so this is why I'm sort of bringing it back to this idea of parasitizenship: is we need to understand that people can only make meanings of their lives within the messages that they have received from society. Um, They they have agency in it, and they can negotiate and they can challenge it themselves. But this culture is surrounds everybody, and it's only when things like aspects punctuate this environment of 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 disability and understandings of disability that we get change. And so the Convention on Rights of Persons with a Disability um, has 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 forced China the Chinese state uh, to think about how it sort of articulates rights of disabled people and, and sort of and, and makes disa- disability work a priority. Although even then, you know, and, and that has also then stimulated disabled uh, groups and non government governmental organisations to sort of try to rethink how they can also uh, fight for rights but but it's quite interesting you know still even with very clear guidance from the CRPD about how we should understand disability and it really isn't about being situated within the individual it's a very it's based on the social model and that you know structures of society are the barriers um, and and the oppressors um, still The law on the protection of disabled persons in China still reiterates, alongside rights and dignities, it still reiterates that disabled people should be understood as people who have lost something, or they cannot perform activities that are considered. And here I'm quoted, quoting again, normal. Um, So they're still measuring, they're still articulating disabled rights vis-à-vis this ideal that. Of 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 a, of a non-disabled person of an able-bodied person, what's even more interesting, I think, is in Article ten, and going back to the point I made about the four selves, these are actually written into Chinese law, and I, and I'll just quote quote it to you because I think it's it's it just really tells us something about it. It says, disabled persons should display an optimistic and enterprising spirit. They should have a sense of self-respect, self-confidence, self-improvement, and self-reliance. So those four, and make contributions to the socialist construction. So within law, they... They are told that they have to be all of these things that we've been talking about today, um, which non-disabled people are not told by law that they have to do. So, so it's a, it you know I think I think it's absolutely fascinating, um, and you know I, I just hope that you know it's sort of provides some inspiration for 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 people working on other contexts or even within the UK and US to sort of think about how 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 we need to understand this sort of very fluid dynamic world of paracitizenship and and how and how it sort of and how it works um, but that's an example of how it works i think it works in the in the chinese context anyway
1: yeah thanks so much professor um, one thing i want to say i we noticed that one of your main points in your answer is like uh, i want to say like um disabled in terms of their la- layer right uh, life writing um chinese disabled writers they couldn't avoid, use you know, the phrase you used, that couldn't avoid the public gaze or able-bodied gaze, and and the, and I want to say, female female disabled writers' situation may be worse, like Zhang Heidi. They couldn't avoid. They, I want to say they are victims of both able-bodied gaze and male gaze. And in the second half of your answer, I think interesting because you mentioned like, like like the, I mean like I mean the, you, you return to a Issue of parasitism, but I want to say it's very interesting because according to my understanding, I want to say um, you. I mean, it's, I can identify the similarity between the liberal, uh, neo-liberalist, the uh, under uh, definition of disability, disability, and uh, like a uh, post-socialist definitions disability in China in the five self and. Uh, Oh, I mean the the, the common sh- I would say the common ground of the two type of definition beyond the ideological ideological boundary is that they both emphasize like uh, first thing narrative I mean overcome narrative second thing they emphasize like uh, they want to make I say they want to make disabled people useful in I mean, politically or economically useful. Well, this thing is very, I want to say, very neoliberalist, <laughs> understand that people. Well, it's very interesting. So, last question, we'll as I, as, I, as I think I think as as you discussed briefly in the second part of your answer to my last question just now let's go back to the Parisianship I think at, at the very end of your book you talk about the perils and the possibility of paraianship so could you please briefly talk about the perils and the possibilities <laughs>
0: okay yeah I mean I think the the the, the way to answer that is, is sort of twofold I think First of all, is, you know, for for disabled persons themselves, you know, there are certainly, you know, any ways of belonging and discourses of belonging hold both perils and possibilities, um, you know, regardless of where the context is. But if we understand it through the perspective of Paris citizenship, we can see that this, this spectrum allows them to have or allows us to understand that what might be limiting or a, a problematic for one person in one particular context might not necessarily be seen or experienced or understood as as that in another context so um so in, it, in itself we have to understand that people one one situation for one person may be a possibility i can see how i belong whereas for another person who's who's educated and informed by different cultural contexts could actually say, well, actually, this is extremely discriminatory and oppressive. And we need to talk about, you know, we need to talk about this. Um, So in terms of the perils, really, what I can see is that wherever disabled people are, they, and particularly in the Chinese case, they are, we can understand it as the place where dominant understandings and rationalities meet the body. So for the Chinese case, we've got socialism plus a huge dose of neoliberal rationality as a sort of meeting somewhere around the disabled body and and disabled persons are the people are having to navigate their way through all of this and we can understand that. Uh, So they will then have, they, they will then get potentially locked in to a set of a set of sort of assumptions and stereotypes and ideas, which is very difficult to get out of. And so they may, in fact, start to reinforce the very things that they set out to <laughs> dismantle in the first place. And, of course, I'm sure Zhang Heidi, um, you know, as she was being fated as a model citizen, thought she was doing a great deal for advancing the rights of, of disabled persons, but actually by, um, you know, creating this narrative it actually may have set back disabled rights and opportunities in in, um, in, in, for the longer term and I think but um, I mean hopefully that will change I don't know but so so these people are seen as successful they've done the successful navigation and so disabled people can see the possibility of changing their lives and so you know broadly it might be that they are set back um, in terms of how uh you know how broader non-disabled society and the structures of society and policies and governments you know look at disabled persons because they're not directly challenging the root of the oppression that they face, um, but still they see the possibility of actually being of value to society and being of use to society and being back in mainstream society. There's a lot of talk about, you know, i um, returned to society you know, pay back society, be of value. And and so th- it seems like an av- avenue of opportunity. So that's why I'm sort of thinking about perils and possibilities. Um, in terms of the second way is thinking about for academic inquiry. And I think what I was, tra- again, going back to the point I made at the beginning is I'm sort of trying to think about the ways in which we can understand these seemingly contradictory and complex Things that are going on underneath, um, underneath everything, and it's not there isn't a consistent narrative that that everybody is 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 understanding. We're all not everybody around the world is working to the same same principles. But if we think of citizenship as as something that affects disabled people, that they are often passively uh, engaged in, but sometimes actively engaging with the fact that um, it can be imposed but it, it can also be negotiated and challenged all of these things and and that it's it's not a consistent sort of understanding that if you say this then it's bad because pe- some people in certain societies might actually think it's a really good thing and will help them in the short term although it might even not be in the long and t- the long run so yeah, I think I think there are poss- perils and possibilities both for disabled persons and also for academic inquiry in in, in thinking about thinking about para citizenship. But what I'm hoping is that you know you know taking the learnings from the social model and the human rights model and all of these other models that are actually you know working to ensure people have rights as well as responsibilities. And that's I think the Chinese case has proven there are a lot more responsibilities than rights at the moment. That 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 spectrum you know china will move along that spectrum so that disabled people are granted more rights without the responsibilities that that come with them um whereas at the moment i think it's more a sense of responsibilities have overridden the rights section of it so um yeah so that's that, that that's my view of of, of citizenship and how it how it might be changing it in itself and depending on context and time uh, and place
1: Okay, professor, thanks so much for your answer to my last question. So at the, at the very end of our talk today, I want again, as I always did in my, I mean, in my episodes in the past, I may recommend my, I mean, the audience of our podcast to read to buy a copy of Professor Sarah Downsey's newest book, Disability in Contemporary Ch- Sorry Disability in Contemporary China: Citizenship, Identity, and the Culture. It's published by Cambridge University Press. So thank you so much to listen to our talk. I mean our know, about Professor Donzey's talk about her fantastic book about disability in contemporary China. So have a good time. See you next time. Thank you.